Mark's gospel opens up with Jesus bursting onto the scene and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel of the arrival of God's kingdom. God's reign through the person of Christ. But the question is, if there is the arrival of God's kingdom, the arrival of a kingdom, kingdoms have citizens. Kingdoms have subjects. And so we are left wondering, who will be the people of this kingdom? Maybe it was assumed it would be obvious. Well, of course, Israel. The Israelites, the Jewish people. But then as the story continues, we see that Jesus faces opposition. As we have just gotten done in uh, the most recent section in Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus is rejected and he is opposed, and we get these sort of four scenes that each has a why question to it, where someone from the religious establishment asks Jesus why. Why does Jesus proclaim to have the authority to forgive sins? Why does Jesus fellowship with sinners? Why don't his disciples fast? Why does Jesus do, why do he and his disciples do what is allegedly unlawful on the Sabbath? And then finally, things reach fever pitch in chapter 3, 1 through 12, where Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees respond by colluding with the Herodians, plotting how they might destroy him. It's a bit unexpected, isn't it? As we are in a gospel that tells us the story of the unexpected king, so we have unexpected rejection. You might expect the king to arrive and his people, as John says, the, the son came into the world and the world received him not. That's what we have here. We have Jesus arriving on the scenes. scenes. The king has arrived, and yet the king is rejected. Following this section, the other side of our context for this passage, the passages that follow, we're going to get further attention given to this idea of that Jesus is rejected. The section that follow, follows uh, raises a question, who is Jesus' true family? As his own biological family uh, think he's gone mad? Or what do we make of those who reject Jesus as they blaspheme the spirit? They, don't, they look at Jesus and they, say, they see what Jesus does and they attribute that to Satan. What do we do with this rejection of Jesus? Who is his true family, his true people? And then in chapter 4, when we get the first lengthy section of Jesus' teaching in the gospel, Jesus will then provide an explanation of his rejection through the use of parables, the parable of the soils, where the sower goes out to sow and there's different types of soil, some of which respond and uh, receive the gospel, but most of the soils don't. Either it's thorny or the birds come and eat the seed, but Jesus is then giving a teaching on why this gospel of the kingdom is unexpectedly rejected by many. So our passage today continues this theme and contributes to it by showing us who constitutes the true people of God amidst this more widespread rejection, albeit unexpected rejection in many ways. When we read our passage, uh, you may have noticed the significance of the number 12. Look at me with verses 13 uh, at verses 13 and 14. 
And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. Now, when you see, the word, when you see that number twelve, that should bring to mind some sort of biblical imagery. Where else do we see the number 12? The number 12 is not one of those numbers that's maybe used as frequently as others in scripture, like seven or 40, but where we do see 12, it is associated as the number of the people of God, namely the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's 12 sons, Jacob or Israel, his 12 sons becoming the 12 tribes. And yet we know as we follow the story of the Old Testament that those 12 tribes didn't exactly fare well. Eventually they're exiled and things are in disarray. And yet when we look at the prophets, they predict a day in which God will restore his creation. He will restore a people to himself. He will bring about a new covenant. One of those prophecies comes to us in Hosea chapter 1. You may remember God gives Hosea these three children and each of the children has these sort of symbolic names. Um, not my people, no mercy. You know, things that every, all of us are rushing to name our kids, right? This is my, this is my child, no mercy. All right? Um, Hosea, though, in chapter 1, uh, th- these names are, are meant to be symbolic, right? The, pro- the prophets engaged in these symbolic actions, these prophetic actions, not just prophetic speech, but prophetic actions. And it says this in chapter 9. And the Lord said, call his name, this, this other child, not my people. For you, Israel, in other words, are not my people, and I am not your God. The reversal of that covenant promise, I will be, you will be my people and I will be your God. Says, that, that's not the case. You're going into exile. It will be the reversal of, the, of what it means, that experience of what it means to be my people. Yet, verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. There will be a fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Verse 11, and the children of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, and the children of Israel, that is the northern kingdom. Remember, at this point in Israel's history, the the kingdom has been divided with the two tribes to the south, Uh, Judah and Simeon, and then the ten to the north. And Hosea here is talking to those of the north. But he's saying, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And this will happen when they they shall appoint for themselves one head. There will eventually be a king, a king as we know from David's line, who unites them. And so Jesus, by calling the twelve apostles, is really, you know, he had a a good deal of a, a large crowd following him. So why 12? It's not like he was restricted and he only had 12. He does it on purpose to signify what his mission is all about. His mission means the restoration of Israel for all those who would unite themselves to him and follow him. We also get that idea here where he goes up on the mountain. Mountains are oftentimes significant in scripture. In Mark's gospel, they are as well, where Jesus' transfiguration happens on a mountain, for instance, in chapter 9. But I think there may be an allusion here to the idea that even in Exodus, when God calls his people and delivers them out of Egypt, he brings them to the mountain. And it's at the mountain, Mount Sinai, that God makes the 12 tribes his people. And so we have here God, in the person of Jesus Christ, calling the 12 on a mountain, making them his people. 
after the rejection from the Israelite establishment, Jesus starts the new Israel, the, 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 the true Israel, the, the end-time fulfillment of what Israel was always meant to be. This is what we get even at the end of the book when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem finally. We have his triumphal entry in chapter 11. In chapter 12, when he's interacting with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he gives them this parable called the parable of the tenants. You may remember this one where it's this parable of how there's a, a, a man who owns a vineyard. The man represents God, and he sends different servants to the vineyard. The vineyard represents Israel. But Israel is constant re, constantly rejecting those servants and, and, and beating them, and that they represent the prophets. The prophets were rejected by Israel. But eventually, the owner of the vineyard sends his son, who they kill. That, of course, is Jesus. The owner of the vineyard, God the Father, sends his son to the vineyard, that is Israel, and Israel rejects Jesus. And Jesus uh, says there that then the kingdom will be given to others, which is exactly what is happening here. There's a transition emerging that out of Israel, ethnically, comes the remnant. This sort of, we have this remnant theology throughout the Old Testament that even within God's people, there's a true people that truly follow him. And out of Israel comes this remnant people that eventually, as we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that it eventually includes even Gentiles. In Romans 9, Paul will cite this passage from Hosea, the not my people passage. Eventually, you will be called my people. And he says that that applies even to Gentiles. Those who are not God's people in the sense of being Gentiles are now elected to be made God's people. Galatians 3, even Gentiles by faith are made the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. They are made the seed of Abraham, so to say. Ephesians 2, God in Christ has made the two, that is, believing Jew and believing Gentile, one new humanity. Revelation 7, John sees uh, or, or he hears a vision of, of 12,000 from all the different tribes. This sort of census idea conveying like you count people in order to, to, to know what your army total is. And so you get this army of God's people, the 144,000. And yet when he turns and he sees, what he sees is a multitude from all nations. The true Israel is a people from all nations. And so what we see in this passage, if we were to boil it down into a sentence, is this. Jesus constitutes the true people of God who share in the mission of God. Jesus constitutes, Jesus determines who constitutes the true people of God who share in his mission. And what I want to do for the rest of our sermon is to really take that, that claim, that message, and just kind of break down each of those elements. One, that Jesus is the one who constitutes this people. Then I want to look at the idea of who that true people of God is, the nature of that true people. And then thirdly, the people as those who share in the mission. What, what is the function of this people? It is to share in the mission. So first, let's look at the, the, the first two words in that message. Jesus is the one who constitutes this people. Jesus constitutes. And we see in this passage there are loads of, of features in the text that point out Jesus' authority, that he is the one taking the initiative to establish his people. Verse 13 says that Jesus summoned to himself, those whom he willed. Your translation may say something like mine does in the ESV, that he called to him those whom he desired. 
that's a bit soft, actually. What, what the original has is this idea. It's not just that he called those, like it's an invitation, be like, eh, if you want, but it's a summoning. He summons to himself those that he wills. This, is, this conveys the idea of sovereignty, his authoritative call. And there's not a single person in the history of the church who is a believer or who is a true disciple of Jesus who is not so because it is Christ who has called them. It's not that we ourselves, you know, in our own mindset, in our own thinking, sort of contrived this idea, hey, maybe I'll follow Jesus. But it's he who calls us. We are dead spiritual corpses, and he, like he speaks to Lazarus, the dead man out of the tomb, come out. We don't have the ability to come out, but he is the one who summons us. And so here, too, when he constitutes his people, it is by his sovereign authority that he calls out his disciples. Furthermore, in this culture, rabbis would not have called disciples. That was not a normal thing to do for rabbis to call disciples. You might think of it today like uh, if, if a student, disciple just means student, right? It means learner. If someone's going to go to a college, it's not like um, Marquette is like, hey, Kyle, you're being a student at Marquette, you know? What? You apply to the college, and then they accept you. And there's a similar process there with rabbis and their learners, their disciples. Is a, is a disciple or a or potential disciple would approach the rabbi and say, hey, could I learn from you? Kind of like an apprentice relationship. But it was one that the disciple initiated. But notice Jesus summons them like a king. You're going to be my disciples. Jesus presumes the prerogative, the authority to call his Disciples, just like we've seen Jesus demonstrating authority up until this point, right? He also then demonstrates authority to constitute a people for himself. And it's pretty presumptuous. Like, who goes up and just says, hey, I want you to follow me now? Like, if I did that to one of you, like, hey, you're going to follow me as your leader and your authority. And what I say goes. You'd be like, that's a little bit, like, you're a little bit full of yourself, right? But that's what Jesus does here. You're going to follow me. And that's the other thing, is rabbis didn't call disciples ultimately to follow them anyways. A Jewish rabbi, if someone was to follow them, it was that they would learn from the rabbi ultimately how to follow the Torah, how to follow the law. The ultimate thing you were following was God's law, not the rabbi themselves. But Jesus here puts himself in the place of the Torah as the very thing that they are to follow. He is the subject of their discipleship. Verse 14, when he appoints the 12, that language there again of appointed, um, that's at least how the ESV has it there, appointed. That's the ESV trying to capture kind of the sense. But it's literally this idea of it's a word that's used for creation. He makes 12. He creates 12. When it comes to the restoration of the people of God, Jesus is the creator. He is the one who brings about new creation and creates 12. And you'll notice here, too, that it's, there's actually 13 characters in this story. Who's the 13th? You have 12 disciples and Jesus. He doesn't number himself among the 12 as one of those who would follow Yahweh. The 12 are the tribes that follow Yahweh, right? But Jesus doesn't put himself as one of those 12. Like, hey, I'm following Yahweh, too. You guys come with me. 
11 plus 1, that makes 12. No, he actually puts himself, if the 12 represent the tribes of Israel, he actually puts himself in the position as Yahweh, the one that they are following and the one that they are worshiping. In other words, one's response to Jesus is what determines your relationship with God. It's what determines ultimately whether you are a part of God's true people. It is what determines whether you are saved. Matthew 7, in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, you remember Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount by saying, he gives that little parable about the person who builds their house on the sand versus the person who builds their house on the rock. There's this idea of firmness um, to, to, to the path of who you follow and what you do. The person who builds their house on the rock, he says, is a person who hears my word and obeys it. That's really presumptuous if Jesus isn't God. You, like, you want to have a firm foundation for your life? You got you to do my word, Jesus says. You got to obey my word. You want to withstand the final judgment? You need to actually look to me. He presumes to be the lawgiver in the Sermon on the Mount. In Acts 4, when the apostles are preaching, they say there is no name given under heaven by which men can be saved except for Jesus. They continue that theme as well. It's audacious if it's not actually true. And that's the thing. If you're here today and you're not a believer, there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. I think there's a lot of people in our culture who would like to be, have a general sense of positivity toward Jesus. Not very many people are anti-Jesus, even if they're anti-Christian or anti-Paul or what have you. Jesus has a pretty good reputation generally. He's known as a peace-loving kind of guy, and no one really wants to be anti-Jesus. But you can't really sit on the fence with Jesus in terms of his, the claims that he made. C.S. Lewis uh, has this famous argument in his book, Mere Christianity, called Lord, Lunatic, or Liar. And he illustrates it in his book, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. I've read The Chronicles of Narnia with Jubilee, and you may remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, Susan and Peter approach the professor when they're concerned that Lucy is kind of losing her, her marbles. Like, she's like, thinks she's gone into this whole world. This is before they know that Narnia is real. And they think that Lucy's kind of losing their mind. And the professor says, well, does, is she, does she look like a lunatic? Like, does she, is she acting like she's out of her mind? They're like, no. Has she been known to be a liar before? Well, no. Normally, Edmund's the one who's the liar, and he's the one saying, you know, like, and what is, what is, what is C.S. Lewis doing? He's, he's priming children to his eventual argument that he makes in mere Christianity. Lord, lunatic, or liar. In other words, the one thing Jesus couldn't be is merely a good teacher because he claimed to be God. And a good teacher would not claim to be God if he wasn't. And if he was, then he wasn't merely a good teacher, but he was God. He would either have to be a lunatic, he thought he was God, but he really wasn't, in which case, why would you listen to a lunatic? That's not a good teacher. Don't look to lunatics for teaching. Or he's a liar. He knows he's lying, in which, in which case you shouldn't follow him. He's corrupt. So he can't, the one thing he can't be is simply a good teacher. He is either Lord, he is lunatic, or he is liar. But as the story with Narnia shows us, he doesn't, his character doesn't come across as a liar. He has incredibly high ethics. He even died for his cause. 
And he doesn't come across as a lunatic either. He's very well composed. He must be Lord. And the way Jesus eventually achieves this reconstitution of Israel, this, rest, this restoration of God's people, as Hosea 11 said, that it's going to be when the Judah and Israel are going to come together, when they appoint for themselves one head, there's eventually going to come this king. But Jesus does it in an unexpected way, as we've been seeing. Jesus, Messiah, is actually rejected by the religious establishment. That's not what you would expect. If you're going to have the restoration of Israel, wouldn't their king be received by the people? And yet the way Jesus achieves this reality, the way he functions as king is by dying. And we see that even already hinted at here in verse 19. Judas Iscariot, who, get this little descriptor, who betrayed him. Remember, Mark, this isn't one of those like, oh man, you just spoiled the whole story, right? He's writing to believers. They know the end of the story, okay? But already we're tipped off. We know where this is headed, and I was just thinking as I was studying this, just imagine, you know, Jesus, he knows this. And he call, when he's calling, he calls Judas. He knows where he's eventually headed. As he, as he, even as he symbolically says, this is, the restor, I'm, this is the restoration of God's people, you know, 1 through 11, and then also Judas. He knows how that's going to happen. The way God restores his kingdom is ultimately by dying for its subjects, so that Criminals can be made citizens under God's reign. And if you're, again, here today and you are not yet a believer in Jesus, you do not yet recognize Jesus as Lord, we would call you to do that as well. The same call that Jesus gives, summoning people to himself, that call goes out throughout the whole world to all who would heed it and listen and repent and believe and receive the salvation that is in Jesus. As Mark writes this, message to his original audience, a group of Christians in the Roman Empire, they too are facing hostility from the surrounding society. Maybe some of them are persecuted and they need to be encouraged to go on. Maybe some of them are compromising and they need to be challenged to live more faithfully, to take up their own cross. You can imagine though, think about the early first century believer who's receiving Mark's gospel to them. He writes it to them. And they're sort of, they feel insignificant. They maybe start to doubt, am I really a part? Is this Jesus movement I'm a part of? Is this just really, like, are we really God's people? We seem so insignificant. We seem rejected by most people. We're misunderstood by people. Some of us are persecuted. And maybe we can have the same sort of doubts today. Like, is this Jesus thing I'm a part of? Is this, is this really what God is doing in the world? I think Mark is writing and he, he's showcasing really the founding of the church here in the apostles, as a way of showing us that those who follow Jesus, who are descendants of this apostolic community, that they indeed are members of God's true people. Jesus constitutes the true people of God. And if you are an heir, if you are part of this family of those who worship and follow Jesus in the apostolic tradition, then you too are a part of the true people of God, even in an unexpected way, even when the church looks like a rejected people, no different than its Savior. So we see that Jesus constitutes the true people of God. Now let's look at the nature of the true people of God. Look at verses 16 to 19 with me. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name 
Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now again, we have an unexpected king who reconstitutes the true Israel with a rather unexpected group of people. Right? This is an odd group of people. Out of the whole crowd that's following Jesus, those whom Jesus calls to himself are the unexpected. They're not from the priestly class. They're not the theological scholars. They're not the religious leaders. But they are the working class, some of them, fishermen, like Peter and John. We see, for example, uh, Peter and John in Acts 4. They're the fishermen. They are called uh, by the crowds. The crowds are surprised by their pe- preaching because they said that they were unlearned. They're simple men. These are fishermen. And not only sort of your average person, a fisherman, but also some negative characters like Levi, a trader, who is a tax collector, right? If you were sort of imagine if someone was to put together like a, a, a team to go about trying to bring about economic renewal or something that or something like that, you might bring together people like uh, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. Like you'd probably put together some of these high class um, business leaders, right? If you're going to try to put together some sort of forum, this is sort of comparable to putting together a bunch of blue collar workers who. You know, it's like, that's not who you would normally go to for something like that. You're kind of left with the question, like, at this point in the narrative, Jesus throws together this ragtag, odd, unexpected group of 12 guys, and you're just like, is anything going to come out of that? Like, who are these people? If Jesus was to hire a consulting firm at this point to say, hey, I got this enterprise I'm starting, I'm the son of God here, and I'm starting the uh, restoration of God's people, like you to do a formal assessment of the 12 men I've chosen, the, uh, the, the consulting firm might come back and they may be like, hey, Jesus, after all of our uh, in-depth research, we've done the strength finder on all these guys, we've done thorough background checks. You know, what we found is that uh, pretty much all of them are, are really bad selections. You know, Peter, he sticks his foot in his mouth a lot, says a lot of things that he shouldn't, he's really impulsive. You got James and John, they're really hot-headed, they're kind of unstable. You never know what they're going to do. Um, you got this Simon the Zealot. He's kind of got in his background this like insurrectionist, anti-government stuff going on. Like, what's all that about? Nath- uh, you got Nathaniel or Bartholomew, who is very blunt. Um, that's he's kind of edgy, and you even got uh, Thomas. He's he's kind of wavering. He's probably going to bring the morale down. Um, I don't know, you might need to go back to the drawing board, Jesus. But this is who Jesus selects on purpose, right? We see this as a theme throughout Scripture, right? That God calls the unexpected. He calls Moses. Moses says, I can't talk, right? He expects that he, he chooses the younger rather than the older. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that not many of you, when God called you and made, made you his people, not many of you were wise by human standards, but God called what is foolish. The gospel message is foolish. The preaching of the gospel is foolish. And the people who believe the gospel are foolish in 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus says, I come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And that's an encouragement for us, that, that even us, like, we're the ragtag, right? 
And Jesus calls us to be a part of his people. And then when he calls these people together, not only are they just kind of an odd, unexpected group in themselves, but they're actually, there's an oddity of them coming together too. They're not exactly the most expected bedfellows, you might say. For instance, probably the most obvious example would be Levi the tax collector and then Judas or Simon the zealot. The zealot here being someone who is kind of this idea of like a strong Israelite nationalist very anti-Rome. Um, eventually, it, this zealot movement developed even into like acts of violence against Rome. And then on the other hand, you have Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, who is compromising with Rome. In other words, the gospel brings together an interesting group of people who, by all other appearances, would not necessarily get along or might not fit, naturally speaking. It's natural for people to come together who already have a lot in common, right? If our whole church, for instance, was all young people or all um, a certain race or all a certain background or all a certain education status or all a certain political preference or what have you, no one would look at that and be like, wow, look at what the gospel did there. Like, that's just what normally happens. People flock together who are similar. The gospel, though, brings a wide range of people together. Sometimes we rub up against each other and there's some friction because we're from all different sorts of walks of life. And it doesn't mean that Jesus left Levi and Simon the Zealot where they were. When he calls them, he calls them to repent. He's going to transform them. But there is a unity that we have in the gospel that the one thing that they had in common, the one thing that brought them together was that they were all summoned by Jesus. And that's the one thing that we ultimately have in common, that what we have in common there, having been called by Jesus and following Jesus, is far greater than any of these other things that may be uh, where we differ from each other. Thirdly, we see that this people, this, this people of God that Jesus constitutes, are a people who share in his mission. So we've looked at the one who forms the people, we've looked at the nature of the people, now let's look at the function of the people. Mark 14 and 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with Jesus, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appoints them so that we get his purpose here. Why does he appoint the 12? What's, this, what's the function of this appointment? He says that he appoints them to send them out. That's where this word apostle comes from. If your translation has apostle, um, that the word apostle means a sent one or a messenger. And so Jesus has appointed these 12 so that they can then be sent out. First, though, before they can be sent out, they are appointed so that, notice this, they might be with him. In other words, if they're going to go out on Jesus' behalf, they first need to learn from the master. The first call of a disciple is simply to be with Jesus. We see this in Acts 1 where when Judas commits suicide and they replace one of the 12 with Matthias, one of the requirements for being eligible to be that new 12th is that they were with Jesus from the beginning so that they could be a witness to all that Jesus taught, so that they could be a witness also to the resurrection. 
So that was a unique element of being an apostle, is that you had to actually be with Jesus so you could represent him. And so too for us. There is a, there's a sense in which if we are to minister on Jesus' behalf, if there's any sense in which we want to minister for Jesus, we can't just rush off and do that. We first got to actually learn Jesus. We got to know Jesus so that we know how to minister him to other people. But they are going to be there to be with him and they're going to be sent by him ultimately here. Notice to participate in Jesus' mission. Jesus has a mission and he invites these 12 into it. The people that he's forming are a people that are on mission for him. They are to extend his kingdom. He tells them that they are to go and preach. This is the same word that was used earlier in the book where Jesus says he preaches the gospel of the kingdom. So they are presumably to preach that same message, to preach the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom. They also said that they are going to be given authority to cast out demons, which is exactly, these are the things that Jesus does, right? He comes and he preaches and he casts out demons. That's what we saw in the beginning of the gospel. And so the, they're going to preach the, the arrival of the kingdom and then they're going to evidence the arrival of the kingdom by expelling the kingdom of darkness. And also, he says, not only are they to preach and to cast out demons, but it says they are to have authority. I've been going around just as I've been meeting with different people in the church over the last few weeks, and one of the, one, one of the questions that I've asked some of you is, like, hey, what have you been thinking about the Gospel of Mark so far? What stood out to you? And I would say the most common response that you guys have been giving me is just noticing the authority of Jesus in the beginning chapters of Mark. The authority of Jesus, right? He's authoritative, he preaches, he casts out demons, but here it says that he is going to give them authority. The authority that we've been so amazed at, that many of you have been noticing in Jesus, he actually gives to them. He delegates the authority. It's almost like, you might think of him almost like a deputy, right? A deputy, according to Oxford Dictionary, is a person whose immediate superior is a senior figure within an organization and who is empowered to act as a substitute for that superior. It's someone who's empowered to act on behalf of a superior. That's the nature of the church. The church is a deputized community. It's a community of deputies for Jesus who act with his authority. We see this elsewhere in scripture, right? where we see that Paul, as an apostle in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, I am an ambassador for Christ, that God is making his appeal through me be reconciled to God. Or Matthew 28, the Great Commission. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus shows up and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now. And then what does he say to the disciples? It's, it's kind of surprising when you think about it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore you go. And you'd expect them to say, therefore, I'm going to go and make disciples, more disciples with this authority that's been given to me. But he says, no, you go. You go and you, you mediate that authority. You, 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 you see other people brought into the kingdom. He gives his authority. He gifts it to the church to act on his behalf. The church in Matthew 18 is said to possess the keys of the kingdom, the key that is what locks and unlocks entrance into the kingdom by practicing church membership and discipline, by bringing people into the church and removing them. We're, we're making a statement on behalf of Jesus of who is a citizen of the kingdom. The church is the deputized community. Now, of course, there's something unique about the apostles here. The apostles 
are, are uniquely um, reflect Jesus' authority in a way that we don't. Nonetheless, by observing the purpose of the 12's appointment, we can learn something about our own identity as the apostolic community, I think. Um, some of you are really interested in knowing your family history, doing, putting together a family tree or doing one of those um, ancestry tests to learn about your genealogy. And I imagine, I'm not one of those people, but I imagine that the reason that's interesting is because you get to learn a little bit about yourself in the process, right? By learning who your family is, you get to learn, like, you find a sense of identity in that. And so, too, when we look to the apostles, we look to the community that Jesus is constituting with them, we get to learn about our own identity as the church. The Nicene Creed, um, one of the early church creeds, confesses that we believe in one holy Catholic, that is universal, one holy universal apostolic church. What does it mean to be an apostolic church? It means that what we preach and what we believe is based on the apostles' teaching, but I also think it means we reflect the very, the very nature of the community that they established through Jesus or that Jesus established through them. The church is the people of God called into the mission of God. The church is a missionary people. It's a missional people. As we say in our purpose and pursuits, God's plan of redemption and renewal flows through the local church. That God has chosen to use the church as his vehicle for spreading the message of redemption, of salvation, and renewal, sanctification. And so if this is truly our identity, one of the questions that you might ask yourself is, what are tangible ways that I can participate in God's work of redemption and renewal? And that's going to look different for all of us. There's different, God has given us different vocations, different opportunities, but that's something to think about. That it, it, we, none of us, there's, there's, there should be no such thing as a Christian who's a spectator who sits on the sideline just watching from the bleachers. We're all in the game. Put me in, coach. Jesus puts us in. How can you tangibly participate in what Christ is doing to work redemption and renewal through local churches like ours? And even you, remember, this is a ragtag group of people. What's going to, like, you look at the 12 and you say, what is God going to do with that? The consulting firm is very skeptical. And yet we know by the end of the book of Acts that they have turned the world upside down. The gospel has gone to the end of to the end of the empire. And so on the, one, on the one hand, we don't take ourselves too seriously. The mission doesn't depend on us. In our own strength, we wouldn't do it. And yet we don't undersell what God is able to do through us. We don't underestimate what Christ can do in turning the world upside down even today. Jesus constitutes the true people of God who share in his mission. He is the one who constitutes them. You want to know what the, where the true people of God is? It is found in Jesus' people. He's the one who determines God's true people. We saw the nature of that true people. People from all sorts of backgrounds. People who might not otherwise find unity, except that they've all been summoned by Jesus. And we saw that this people is one that shares in the mission of Jesus. The ones to whom he delegates his authority. The Lord's Supper... In the Lord's Supper, we get these emblems that Jesus gives us, bread and cup that are uh, 
pictures of his promises to us in the gospel of his death on our behalf. The bread symbolizing his body and the cup symbolizing his blood. Both of these things, things that he offers for us on the cross to save us from our sins. But not only is the Lord's Supper, the gospel made visible, as we might say. Sometimes we talk that way about the Lord's Supper, the gospel made visible. Jesus' death made visible for us. But it's also the church made visible. Because it's saying when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's saying this is, this is the church. This is those who believe in the gospel, who receive the promises that are depicted here. And so as Jesus in this passage constitutes the true people of God, so the Lord's Supper is not only, it's not only a meal that we take individually, but it's a meal that we take together. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Where 1 Corinthians 11, he's directly addressing an issue in the Corinthian church related to the Lord's Supper. They weren't taking the Lord's Supper in a way that was worthy, in a way that was fitting, in other words. And the reason they were practicing it incorrectly there, in that context, was because they were doing it in a divisive way. The rich people were showing up first, and they were uh, having a big feast and getting drunk, and they were leaving the poor folks out in the church, and there was division in the church. And Paul says, the Lord's Supper, one of the things it proclaims, not only does it proclaim the death of Christ, but it proclaims our common participation in the death of Christ. It proclaims our unity in the death of Christ, that we are one people, as he says in chapter 10, because there is one bread. We who share in it are one. And so as you partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, Maybe let that be uh, where you allow yourself to meditate and reflect. Is that the Lord's Supper is not just something that saves you as an individual, but it's something that saves a community. It has made you a part of the very true people of God, uh, to which belong other brothers and sisters in Christ.